0: So we are in our series in the book of Exodus, and I've said this a few times now, but I've been having a blast going through this book. I feel that it's very timely for where we are as a people and where we are as a country and the different things that, that we're going through. I think that even with the fact that this is an Old Testament book, this is before Jesus showed up, before his death and his resurrection, uh, there's still so much that we can glean from it. Uh, Tonight, I'm going to go ahead and preface this, and from time to time, I'll say things like this, and they haven't always shown themselves to be true. For example, last week, we didn't press record on the, the button back there, so we didn't have anything to put online, and one of our small groups is a group that reflects on the sermon, so I thought to myself, oh goodness, I need to, I need to do something. I'll just go home and re-preach the sermon. So I'm sitting in my study and I hit record and it took me like an hour to hit record. You know how sometimes like when you're in middle school and you want to call that girl and you like, you get, I don't even know if you guys know about telephones, uh, like old, that aren't like, you know, old telephones. You dial the number. But see, like I was uh, struggling to hit record and then I hit record and something happened. I just snapped and then 77 minutes later I was done talking and I thought, oh gosh, there's two problems one that's embarrassingly long uh and nobody wants to listen to me for 77 minutes and the other bad part of that was i didn't have like this is not a spectator sport like you guys sitting there i would love interaction like if you have a big hearty amen that you want to say or if something moves you feel free to let us know because that will get me fired up and sometimes i'm just kind of up here creating my own energy um but I'm sitting in my office by myself preaching and just like really self-conscious about it. And like the recording kind of sounds like this and like, well, you know, there's just this, this verse in the Bible and so it sounded like really super weird. And it's like 77 minutes of me being super awkward. There's no way we could have put that out there into the world, but okay, my point being, I had 77 minutes worth of stuff, I guess, that I needed to say this evening don't feel as though I have 77 minutes worth of things to say, this is certainly not the type of uh, sermon that you'll usually hear here, okay? So really, this is just points of reflection, and we'll kind of talk about some things, and hopefully it'll hit you where you're sitting, and then we can leave here changed and empowered and challenged to be uh, more and more like Jesus, even though we're looking at the Old Testament text here, okay? But I do think there's a lot in this particular passage that we're looking at tonight that's, that's relevant for where we are. I will also say this one other thing. The passage that we are reading this evening is really long, okay? So just brace yourselves. But before we get there, I want to do a little bit of review because as an education major, uh, my old, lovely, old lady advisor, she was probably like in her early 70s at at the time, she was just like super grandma-ish, and she would always say, review, review, review. You always have to review because nobody remembers what you're talking about. So... Here we go. This um, is a text that is kind of piggybacking off of the the text that we looked at last week, which is Moses's call narrative. Okay, now we've seen Moses um, as a small boy being floated down the river. We've seen Moses kind of growing up and leaving his his palace in Egypt and going out and seeing his people and uh, ending up killing one of the Egyptian slave masters that was oppressing one of his own people. We've seen Moses escape and go to Midian and finally find uh, for himself a wife. And we've seen Moses have a, a child that he names Gershom, which means a stranger there. And it's kind of indicative of Moses not really having his own identity, his own national identity, because he's born as a Hebrew but because of um, the powers at the time in Egypt, they wanted to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys. But this is why his mom saves his life. And Moses ends up being raised in the king of Egypt's own house by his daughter. So here's Moses, this Hebrew guy, but he's being raised by an Egyptian woman. And then Moses leaves because the king of Egypt wants to kill him again, because Moses had killed one of the Egyptian slave masters. And now Moses is in Midian and and Moses is kind of trying to figure out who he is. And last week, what we looked at was Moses's call narrative. Now, there's call narratives throughout the Old Testament. We've seen similar structures in the callings of Joshua and Samuel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the main prophets. And we see Moses' call narrative centering around a few different um, plot points. The first thing is Moses experiences what is called a theophany. God shows And I know that sometimes when we read stuff like this, we think, well, gosh, I wish God would show up for me somehow, especially in in an overt way like this. The text says that Moses was shepherding uh, the sheep of his father-in-law, and he's trying to find them pasture. And then the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. And I know a lot of you, you're trying to figure out how God speaks to you and when to to hear God and, and what to hear from God. And here we have in this story, and this can be kind of depressing because Moses is just minding his own business. It's, a, it's an ordinary day where he's shepherding these, these sheep. And then he stumbles upon a, a flame of fire that is burning in this bush. And not only that, don't forget this, the angel of the Lord appears in this whole uh, theophanic vision. Okay. That's fancy stuff there. It continues, it says, Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And I love how the text phrases this. So Moses says to himself, hmm, I will go see this site, the bush that is on fire that does not burn up. We just kind of picture Moses sauntering over just to see what's going on. And this is where he meets God. God. This is where Moses meets God and receives a call. Moses receives a job that he is supposed to be doing here from this passage. God shows up in a magnanimous way in this flame of fire, this self-sustaining fire that is not consuming the leaves or the branches of this bush, it just is. And most scholars would say that's indicative of God, that he just is. He is self-sustaining. He's not reliant upon anyone. And, and he shows up and then he gives Moses a specific charge. God says, I have seen, I'm going to freestyle here. I've seen the plight of your people. I have heard their cries come up to me and I have known what's going on in their lives. God is making this clear to Moses as he has left himself. Moses had, has left Egypt, seeing the plight of his own people. And he's now in Midian, and he could potentially have been in Midian for 20, 30, or even 40 years. The only benchmarks we have in the Bible are um, Stephen in the New Testament says that Moses is 40 when he leaves the comforts of the palace to go see what's going on. And then in Exodus, it says that Moses is 80 years old when he finally stands before Pharaoh. So we have these two benchmarks and in between Moses as this shepherd in Midian and God revealing himself and God calling to Moses, I have seen, I have heard, I have known. So now go Moses, because I am sending you and I'm sending you back to where you came from so that you can advocate for my people and so that my people will be released finally and climactically from slavery and servitude. Moses, your life now as a shepherd and hanging out with your wife and your kid, uh, it's going to change because I want you to do something for me. And this is where we left off last week with this, so now go, Moses, I am sending you. And what we have next is this long dialogue between Moses and God. And again, for some of you, you're like, how do I know when God is speaking to me? And we read this stuff in the Old Testament we say, gosh, that stinks, like cool for Moses, but I wish that I could have a dialogue with God where he says, hey, I want you to go do this. And we say, well, and we begin to have this conversation. And what's interesting about this is I think this is a dialogue in the purest sense of the term where we have Moses and God and they're going back and forth. But there's this dialogue and one scholar says, it's no wonder that the narrative that follows what we looked at last week shows Moses voicing a series of serious doubts and resistances to the summons for he has been summoned to do a remarkably dangerous deed. Moses, I want you to go back home to Egypt. Remember where they wanted to kill you because you were a murderer? I want you to go back there, and I want you to stand up in front of one of the most powerful empires at the time, and I want you to say, the people that you are holding hostage, that you are keeping in slavery, you need to let us go now. It's no wonder that when Moses hears this task, it seems to be something that's beyond his reach. So we have in, in the text we're looking at tonight, I just wanna um, frame it for you. Moses objects, five times he objects to this call of God. He says that he is unworthy. He says something like, who am I that this, that you should entrust me with this task? Or Moses then claims that he doesn't know who God's name is and the people won't think that he's credible at all. And Moses fears rejection from the people, so God gives him some signs to do. And Moses says that he's unable to speak. And then finally, at the very end, Moses just says, please send somebody else anybody else. I don't want to do this. And each time God shows up and responds to Moses in this pure dialogue, and we'll see how God even kind of adjusts what it is that he is wanting to do in this. But the main theme of that right side of the screen there is God showing up and saying, Moses, I will be with you. You have nothing to fear. I will be with you. So this is the text, and this is where it gets long, so just stick with me, but I think this is important, and it's a pretty good story. So hear it. This is Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. It says, "'But Moses said to God, "'Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt?' And God said, "'I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain.'" God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation." go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them the Lord the God of your fathers the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob appeared to me and said I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites the Hittites the Amorites Perizzites Hivites and Jebusites into a land flowing with milk and honey the elders of Israel will listen to you And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor, and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me, or listen to me, or say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him but take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. The word of God for the people of God. Yeah, wake up. Um, So this is a long story. And what we see here is Moses saying time and time again, I have this excuse and God responding. Yeah, but that's not good enough. I have this excuse, but... That's not good enough. And we see what's going on here in this passage. And hopefully, um, that was the first time I've read this passage out loud. But one of the things that sticks out is, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God keeps saying this to Moses to kind of reiterate, I have this covenant, right? I've made these promises to my people and I will see it through. That's who I am. Okay. Now, I do want to break this talk down into just two sections. First, the nerdy theological issues of this passage. We have to at least address a couple of them. Okay. The first one is clear as day. The divine revelation. This is the divine revelation where God reveals who he is to Moses. Yes. It's exciting stuff. Okay, so in the text, this is Moses' second qualification. The first one, he says, who am I? And in the second one, he says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Scholars are kind of... A, a on different places with regard to this, they're wondering if this is going to be a new name that the Israelites have never heard before. Moses is trying to get some new information. But think about it, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, does it? Because Moses shows up, this guy that they don't really trust, and he shows up and says, this name that you've never heard before is sending me to you. Most people on the other end would be just kind of skeptical, okay? So other people have thought that maybe Moses, because he's been gone for so long, doesn't necessarily even remember who this person is. And he needs to know a bit more about this God that is speaking to him in the midst of a burning bush, okay? It's still weird and kind of trippy, but this is what Moses is wanting to know here. Um, One scholar says, whereas the first objection that Moses brings is, I don't think that I can do this. This is interesting. The second objection is, nobody else is gonna think I can do this either. So you've got to give me something here, God. You've got to give me something that I can go back to these people and prove to them that we actually had this conversation if that is what you want to happen. And this is what God responds It's very enigmatic, it's very kind of ethereal, and when you hear it, it doesn't really strike you with a whole lot of sense, but he says, I am who I am well, oh, geez, thanks, God, that doesn't really. That doesn't, that doesn't help me. You could translate this in a, in a couple of different ways. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or there's something that's tied to like a creative act here, like everything um, is sustained by me. But he says, I am who I am. And again, some scholars have said that this is almost like a Moses, why are you even asking me this question? I am who I am, you're, you're, you're going in the wrong direction. So God is, is wanting to at least say who he is. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. And for any biblically literate people in the room, this is when Jesus shows up and he says, I am the good shepherd or I am the door. In Greek, this is ego eimi. And every time Jesus says that, there's hints back to this passage where God is saying, I am. Okay, now what we learn here is this word for God in this particular passage in, in Exodus, this is pronounced perhaps Yahweh, okay? In uh, Hebrew thought, this is called the tetragrammaton, okay? The four letters where we have Yod, He, Vav, and He. In the Hebrew text, this is where we are gonna, just, just, just humor me for a moment. In the Hebrew text, this was unpointed. There were no vowels, And for a Jewish audience, they would not have pronounced this name because it's too holy. You do not do that. When you come up to this word in the Hebrew text, even to this day, you say one of two things. You say Adonai, which means my Lord, or you say Hashem, which means the name, the name that you do not say out loud because it is too holy. Holy, don't go Voldemort on me because this is not what we're talking about, Harry Potter fans. This is something different where the name of God is too holy. This is Yahweh in the text. This is Adonai. Now look, I wanna show you something and I spent a lot of time working on this. So just hang with me here. Now what people have done when they added these vowel points, which is probably the seventh to the ninth century CE, not too long ago, okay? Now look, these vowel points here, see how they're not moving? Can you at least affirm that they're not moving? The dot on top, does it move? No. no. The little thing that looks like a T, does it move? No. no. So what people have done is they've t- they have took the vowels of Adonai and they've put them onto this unpointed, unsounded out word, the word that you do not say, and they've taken the vowels of Adonai and put them onto Yahweh because they don't want you to pronounce it. This is where, little known fact, this is where we get the word Jehovah from. This combination of Yahweh with no vowels and then Adonai's vowels, and we throw that onto Yahweh. I'm looking at your faces and you're telling me, I have no idea what's going on here. And it's cool because the big point that you need to see is when this word shows up in the text, you cannot pronounce it because this is nonsense. These vowel points here, you need more for it to be a word. So when you come up to it, you stop. And you recognize immediately that this is something that cannot be sounded out, so you say, Adonai. It's interesting, isn't it, how the Jewish community approaches their scriptures and how the Christian community approaches their scriptures. The reverence that is shown by this community where they don't even want to sound out the name of their God because it's too holy. My one uh, professor was telling this story. He did his uh, PhD work at Harvard. And in his program, like they would just sit around the table and read the Hebrew scriptures together. And one day this evangelical Protestant guy came in and he had an apple and they were reading the Hebrew scriptures together. And the guy (laughs) takes a big bite of his apple and his Jewish professor looks over and says, you can get out of this classroom right now. We do not eat an apple while we're reading Torah. Just an interesting side note here that this, this community is pretty intense about what's going on here with this term. But what we learn about this in the midst of all of the confusion with regard to what is going on here, man, guys, I was really excited about that slide. <laughs> all right. Walter Brueggemann said, God's answer is extensive and complicated to this question of what is my name, and without pursuing the endless critical opinions about the origin of the formula, what is underneath the surface there is, there has been so much ink spilled on Exodus 3, 14, and 15. Nobody really quite has a handle on where this word came from. The best we can do is say that it's, it's linked up with this verb that means I am or I will be, or there's some kind of in, indication of presence. But he says, without getting into all that, it is enough to see that the formula bespeaks power and fidelity and presence. Another scholar says, Yahweh is a God who will be there, who will be with them, who will be whatever is necessary to be in different contexts to achieve that purpose announced to the ancestors. Moses says, what's your name? And he says, in a nutshell, I will be with this people and I am with this people and I I will be everything that they need me to be to hold up my end of this covenant that I have promised to them. This is all uh, within this, this name here where Moses is hearing, perhaps for the first time, who God actually is. He's the God that is present. And when he goes to the people, when he goes back to his own folks and they say, who sent you? And he says, Yahweh, the God who is and the God who will be the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who has made promises to us, he's the one that's still invested in you as a people and he's the one that's sending me here to get you out of this place, okay? So that's the the first nerdy theological issue is this name of God and there's a lot of stuff going on underneath the surface there. We also have the nerdy theological issue of Moses and magic, Okay, so when that whole little bit about Moses, what's in your hand? It's a staff. Well, he's a shepherd, so shepherds have staffs, right? And God says, throw it down onto the ground, and God starts doing party tricks. And the, the staff turns into what? A snake. And what does Moses do? He runs away. I, I can appreciate that. The other day, we, Kate and I were sitting in the house watching TV, and a frog started jumping down the banister from the second floor coming downstairs and Kate and I are terrified of frogs. I don't know why, they don't even have teeth, but it's like, so I got Abe's little basketball hoop and I picked it up and I tried to like shoo him off of, all the guys are losing respect for me, but if this is new information to you, then we haven't hung out a lot, okay? But I ended up trapping the frog in a hat and getting him out of the place. So I can understand Moses's alarm with regard to a snake. You don't even wanna see Kate and I with snakes, good grief. If you want to see something funny um, just have Kate in a room where a cat is present she will maul you so just be warned oh you're over there I didn't even see you over there I thought I was giving him some good info that's like one of the times in our marriage when I feel like I'm the man like the stereotypical man because when we see a cat Kate is like behind me and makes me feel good I appreciate that okay Um, so Moses and magic, he, he, he then uh, grabs the, the, the snake by its tail. And some people say this is a sign of Moses's faith where he is trusting that God will not let him be devoured by this potentially poisonous, um, crazy snake slash staff. Okay, so this is Moses like showing some faith and it turns into a staff when he picks it up. He's also got that weird thing where he puts his hand in... To his cloak, and he pulls it out, and it's got, it says that it's leprous, but this is not leprosy in the way that we think of it. It's just like uh, in the Old Testament, whenever you had some kind of weird, gross skin disease, they would call that kind of leprosy, where you'd have like an exposed skin, or your skin in this case would become white and scaly and not cool, and then he put it back in and takes it out. And the third thing is where he takes water from the Nile and pours it out and it becomes blood. This is all weird, weird stuff. But what's underneath of this a lot of times is that these are Precursors to what will happen in the plagues. The first thing about the snake, it's not just randomly that his staff becomes a snake. Some people would say that the snake is a symbol of Egyptian authority and power. Like when you see a headdress for a pharaoh, you see the snake on the top. Like this was a this was a big image for the Egyptians at the time. So Moses having power potentially over a snake would demonstrate something about Moses' God and the power that God has. Same thing with the Nile, where they take the source of Life, which in this context, the Egyptians were worshiping the Nile and, and the gods that were associated with the Nile and Moses beginning to do whatever it is that Moses wants to do through the power of God to the Nile. It's as if Moses and God are saying to the Egyptians, we got you. Now, when we actually get to the plague narratives, there are a couple of Egyptian magicians who can do the same party tricks, if you will, that Moses And his tribe are are pulling off. But what we see is this precursor to this and this theological issue of God beginning to say, I am the better God compared to these Egyptian gods and I will be with you. One scholar says, this is magic, pure and simple. This does not reflect negatively on God. To the contrary, it reveals a God who acts in and through the realities that relate to the context of which people are a part. Hear that again, because this is so important and this comes up in so many different contexts for us in our conversations. When we're at Rise Up and you're asking all these questions, it's usually centered around this. When you say, I'm having a hard time understanding the Bible in X, Y, and Z, it usually has something to do with this, where God acts in and through the realities that relate to the context of which people are a part. He relates in a way that people understand at the time that he is relating to them in a language that they understand. So when Moses has these these weird signs, these magic moves, they say something about the context in which Moses is operating. If God was to show up in a burning bush right now and to give us similar signs, he would not ask me to take my staff and throw it on the ground. Why? Why? I'm not a shepherd, I don't have a staff, and he knows I don't like snakes, so that'd be two things why that wouldn't happen. But God would relate to us in a way that makes sense in our time and in our context, which is why when we read the Bible, there is work to be done for us to step back and understand what's going on in this context at that time and to try to understand what's going on here, okay? There's more that we can say about that. But the third thing, and I think the last thing that's kind of nerdy is Moses's speech impediment. When Moses says, literally, I am uh, heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. People have no idea what this means. People have no idea if Moses actually has a speech impediment or if Moses is saying, I don't remember Egyptian too well. I've been hanging out in the fields with all these sheep. I barely talk except when I'm home with Zipporah and Gershom. So nobody knows what's going on here, but it's at least interesting because God keeps coming back and answering all of these things to say, it doesn't matter, Moses. I got you. Now, the other more practical theological issues that emerge from this passage, and these are the talking points, okay? So after like that 25 minute, whatever, introduction, here we go. These are the things that I want to leave you with this evening. The first one is Moses's self-doubt The overarching story that we see here is Moses' self-doubt. God keeps saying, hey, Moses, I've got a job for you to do. And Moses keeps saying, no, no, no. And underneath of that, we can see that there's something underlying where Moses doesn't trust himself or doesn't believe in himself or doesn't feel up to the task. We could stop right there. And I think this is a terrible reading of the scripture, but we could stop right there. And I could just ask the very poignant question. What about you? Do you feel up to the task of living as a follower of Jesus? Do you feel up to the task to ministering to that person that you have already written off? Do you feel up to the task for beginning the conversation with your mom or your dad or this estranged person in your family? Do you feel up to the task to be an ambassador for Jesus? Do you feel up to the task for anything that God is calling you to do? We relate to Moses, right? When God has this big plan for most of us, it's not... um, oh yeah, I want to do that. I want to go be that. When the reality hits, we begin to say, I don't know about that. And it could be the smallest things. You could be signed up to serve in the homeless shelter and you could say, I don't know. I don't know if I'm the person to go and relate to these Individuals, Or I don't know if I'm the, the right person to be at the garden in the summertime hanging out with kids because I don't know if I really relate to kids too well. Or I don't know if I should um, invest in this ministry or give financially to this nonprofit. Or I don't know. Like we just begin to ask these questions when the realities of life hit the fan and we can identify with Moses where we begin to say, who am I? God, why in the world would you ever want to use me? Even to something where it's so clear that God has asked you already. Love God, love your neighbor. And we immediately say, well, who's my neighbor? I don't know if I wanna love that person because that's gonna be a risk for me. It's interesting in this passage though, when Moses begins, he kicks off with, who am I? And it's not that God comes alongside and, and you know pats Moses on the back and says, well, oh, Moses, you're a great shepherd and you stick up for people all the time and you've got all these great qualities and you're just, yeah, Moses, you're good, He doesn't say that, uh, which for the words of affirmation people in the room, if if that's your love language, that God's not going to be super helpful here, except God just comes along and says, uh, Moses, um, I don't reject what you're saying. Okay. Right. Who are you exactly? But I will be with you, Moses. And that's all you need to know. So all the Christians in the room, right? When Jesus says, I will be with you when we have through scripture saying that the spirit of the most high God is indwelling within us. And yet we keep saying, who am I? I have to imagine that the spirit is just crying out saying, I am with you. Whatever it is that you're trying to do, whatever it is that you're trying to to begin in that process of reconciliation with people or beginning to be a minister, all we need to remember is God is with us. And we see that here in this passage where God doesn't stroke the ego. He just says, Moses, all you need to know is I got you. So for us, when you go to work, God says, I got you. When you're at home and those kids are driving you bonkers, God says, I got you. When you're with that person, that you absolutely cannot stand in the most positive way we can frame that. God says, I got you. Trust me, I will show up and I will be there for you. Okay, so this is the first practical issue: is this idea of Moses' self-doubt that just goes so far um, beyond the scope? Second thing: uh, the curiosity and questions and a real dialogue that happened here. I just want to point this out because this is um, something that also comes up in our coffee conversations. Most people have questions. Most people have concerns with regard to faith. Most people have things that don't seem to square when real life happens, when your family member passes away or the relationship that you have put everything in breaks apart or when the job doesn't work out or the grad school application comes back with a negative. Any of those moments when life happens, we begin to doubt this process and we ask questions. And I want to say here that at least what we see through Moses is, that's okay. God is has been and will always be big enough for any question that you have for him. Whether that's the stuff I like to think about, which is the absolute, painfully detailed and minutiae of the Bible. You saw it like my dots on the screen, like that kind of stuff. Or if this is where you're trying to navigate real life. Never write yourself out of the story because you have questions and never let anyone who is surrounding you saying that you shouldn't be asking them, never let them inside your head so much that you stop asking them because God can handle whatever it is that you have. And there's people in this community and beyond that can sit with you in the midst of the mess and can hear you say, who am I? and can hear you say, but I have this, or I have that, or all these things that Moses is spitting out. There's people that can sit with you in the midst of that. And I believe that at the core, when we pray and when we cry out, the things that we've been learning from Exodus is, he sees, he hears, he knows, he will be present. Trust that. And don't allow yourself to live in fear. And do not write yourself out of the story and leave the faith Because the people that you are surrounded with will not allow you to engage that. There are other people that will allow you to engage that. And it's vital for your growth. So what we see here is Moses, he's being super curious. He sees something over there and he puts himself in the place where God wants to meet him by saying, there's a burning bush over here. I want to go see what that is. And maybe you're curious about something too, where you want to go see what's happening over here. And perhaps within a church community, it might not even be the place or the thing or the whatever that... We might say this is a really good idea, but for you, it's just something that's pulling you there, and perhaps God can meet you. Do not twist that into, oh, well, Josh is saying that I can go blah, blah, blah. No, he's not saying that. I thought I'd get a little bit more of a reaction there, but okay. Um, What I'm saying is you can be curious, and you can put yourself in the place of God so that God can meet you, and you can ask your questions, and you can have a real dialogue. With God, this is one of the neatest things in the whole thing: is God's adaptation. So God has this plan. So now go, Moses. I want to send you to Egypt, and I want you to advocate for these people, and I want you to get them out of here. Moses says, "I can't do it. I got a speech impediment. All these different things." And by the end, God says, "Fine, I'll give you Aaron. He's got. He doesn't have a speech impediment. You can go with Aaron. Whatever." And it seems as though God is changing. That's a scary word. It seems as God is changing the plan, or altering the plan, or adapting the plan to meet the need in the conversation that He is having. Now, what's happening though in this context is God is wanting to use Moses, and Moses is writing himself out of the story. And now it's Moses and Aaron, and it's no longer just Moses. And now he's got to have a partner or a sidekick. And God didn't want to work that way, but God's going to work that way because Moses keeps being a butt. I don't know if these walls have heard that before, but I'm at least happy that we went PG-13. Okay, that's good. But here we see this conversation that God is having with Moses and God is adapting to to what Moses is saying. Moses wants another... um, Uh, another sent, another person to be sent with him is what saying, picking this up midway. And God agrees to send Aaron along with him. Uh, There's this other scholar who terms this, it's so beautiful, but he didn't have a good quote. It's like, terms this as God's plan B. Sending Moses and Aaron is God's plan B after Moses has refused plan A. And Moses' resistance is taken seriously by God who adapts. I don't know if you hear that too often. But man, that is deep and that is rich and that's kind of beautiful that God is in such relationship with us that when we say things, that he hears it. And he responds. And sometimes it's not super positive. Like this is not a good thing because plan A was the better of the plans, but God is still adapting and going with plan B. Now for the super ethereal people and philosophical people in the room, you're saying, well, didn't God know what was gonna happen? And hasn't this all been planned and whatever, whatever. It's just stop for a minute, okay? And see the words on the page and see what's happening here and save that question for later, okay? Because it's a good one. Uh, third thing, fourth thing, I forget, fourth thing. The other more practical theological issue is Moses's calling here. God is relentless in getting Moses to do what it is that God wants Moses to do. He's adapting to the, to the plan and to Moses's um, problems. But what we see here is God is resolved that Moses is the person. And I found this quote to be haunting. And I wanna read it and then I don't really think I wanna say too much about it, Okay. But it says that Moses runs from election by God. The person who leads had to be dragged into a position of leadership. It's suggestive. There are few volunteers among the leaders of Israel or the leaders of the early church. There are few volunteers. People, it seems, have to be tapped on the shoulder and have to be invited in and have to be worked on a bit so that they can understand their capacities for leadership. They can understand their capacities to be used by God in great ways. And for some of us, we might need to start being relentless in our pursuit of people where we see something in them that they might not see in themselves and not to give up on them, but to keep working and saying, I think there's something happening. I think there's something going on here. I think that you're called for this. I think that you're called for that. If any of you guys have known me for a while, you know that I try to get pretty much anybody with a face to go to seminary and to become a pastor. Okay? And I don't want to diminish the people that I've talked to about seminary because it's not quite anybody with a face, but if there's like this inkling to ministry, I say, go to school because it'll change your life. <clears throat> You'll have dots on the screen one day and <laughs> that's revolutionary. <laughs> but there's things where it, it says here that these, this, this call from Moses is not one that he wanted to sit under, but it's one that God would not let him escape from. And I do wonder... That when we're sitting in this room and we hear something like that, if some of you are running, running from that call, I don't know what it is, but running from that thing, perhaps because of the self-doubt, perhaps because of the questions and the the way that people have ostracized you because you asked them, or perhaps it's because of the, the disqualifications that you think are present in your life. I don't have this gift or that skill or whatever. In this text, it's not about skills or gifts. God says, I'm gonna use you and it's gonna happen. And as a pastor, that's so comforting to know because it's not about me. It's not about school. And it's not about dots on the screen. It's about God working in and through me as it is God working in and through you to reach people that no one else potentially could even reach. So this passage, it has a lot of stuff in it for us, but the things that I want to leave you with are as we just sit here today. I think it's perhaps the most poignant is as a follower of Jesus, as one who has committed yourself Christ saying, you are the Lord of all. I give you everything that I have. I'm fully surrendered to you. Where are we when it comes to the objections and the qualifications and the excuses? Where are we when it comes down to how fearful we are of being received, how fearful we are of people thinking us that we're weird or whatever, and how much is it that we begin to trust God to move in the midst of our lives? Tonight, my hope is that when we see this stuff, we'll understand that it's not about us. It's about what God wants to do in and through us. And I'm hopeful that we begin to understand what it is that God is asking us to do. And if we're wavering on that, what God is at least asking us to do is to love him with everything that we have and to love our neighbors. And we can start there. And I think that the rest will fill itself in as we're just loving people like we're called to love and providing them with a different image of Jesus and the church and the Christian faith. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for who you are. We are thankful that you have called us to your work. We're thankful that you have invited us into this story of redemption and reconciliation through your son, Jesus. We're thankful that we have, in many cases, that we have received that life and that hope that's available through him. Today, I ask that we would stop living in fear, that we would stop living with excuses and qualifications, that we would stop seeing ourselves as less than, but through your spirit, that we would see ourselves as powerful potential agents of change and hope in the lives of people that we have written out of the story. God, you have have not written them out of the story, but we have written them out of the story. Allow us to see your work, your strong hand, as the text says, and that we will see lives changed, lives that we never would have thought to be changed, and that we would be used in that situation to be reminded again about how great you are, God. We can sing those words until we're blue in the face, but allow us to experience it in a way that is completely awe-inspiring. And God, for those days when we don't feel you and you feel absent and you feel elusive, may those experiences that we have give us light and give us hope to experience you again and again and again. God, in all of these things, be present. And in all of these things, help us to remember that you are present and that you are involved and that you see and that you hear and that you know and that you love us with a love that cannot be silenced and a love that cannot be written off. God, help us to live in light of that and help us to live each and every day more conformed into the image of your son. Help us to love you well and help us to love our neighbors well, even when it costs us something. May we be obedient and may we be courageous and may we take risks to be used by you to reach people need to be reached. We ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.